Uh, welcome back to Rig Radio 2.0. Uh, it's been a minute. We tried to record something a couple weeks ago, had some technical difficulties, but we are back and ready to go. Uh, my name is Megan Fowler, and I um, teach high school here in Edmonton, and uh, really I'm just trying to make it through until our fall break. Hey, I'm Avery Lewis McDougall, as always, the token black guy of the rig. I also write for the Hockey News, uh, Yahoo Sports Canada, where I appear on Zone Time, and I do a few shows through Intermission Podcast, Brian Avery Hour, and Avery Sports Show. I'm Stephen Darnell, local man about town comedian and the token white guy on this uh, podcast. Go ahead and check. I'm the only one on the whole show. <laughs> and another thing, those technical issues, entirely my fault. 100% me. Well, I wasn't going to say anything. I just, I'm comfortable you know, with who had, I am. Okay. We did have technical difficulties, and uh, it <laughs> made it so that uh, the really great show that we recorded couldn't be, uh, couldn't be posted, and that's too bad. Um, yeah. Well, it's we're going to jump right into it. We're going to talk a little bit about, about the preseason, because we just had a little conversation off-air about it. Um, and then we're going to sort of meander through preseason, uh, why it's there. Uh, whether or not there should be fighting. Uh, talk a little bit about some uh, new American hockey coverage, some Jack Eichel. Talk a little bit about uh, Robin Leonard's statements uh, from earlier this week. And then we'll do a little bit of a season preview before I ask a very important question about Dancing with the Stars. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk about the preseason. Well, all right. What do you guys think of the preseason? I have not watched a single second of it other than seeing a replay of something on Twitter in a GIF form. That's all I've seen. <laughs> That's not even a video, just a GIF. <laughs> I also have not watched any, and I would even add, I don't believe in watching the preseason. I think it's like a, a life mistake. Uh, you know what? I have watched a few of the games, and I will say this much. I am I am buying Brendan Perlini's hype because he's not playing in the first line. He's not being tie-raddied, which is a good thing. A good I know thing. they got him... <laughs> They got him playing in the third and fourth line, and he's put up five goals. You know what? If he's someone who can come into this Oilers season, and he is someone who has a track record of scoring 14, 17 goals, if he can come into this season and be uh, a guy who's a, he's a big body, if he can score in that third and fourth line, I'm happy. I'm good for him. You know, good for him to see him stepping up as a guy who wants to get his shot again to play in his side of the world. Yeah, by all accounts, he's been fantastic. It's not like he's had goals going off his uh, butt or anything that someone else shot. Um, every... Review that I've read said that he's doing great, and it's nice to see, uh, you know, guys do well. I think that we've all seen enough, like you said, Tyratties or Mike Comries or what have you. In the, we just know not to make too much of the preseason. He could just be having a great one-week stretch when he's trying his hardest, and most of the people he's going against are either not NHLers or people trying half as hard as they can. But uh, good for him. It's only a good or neutral thing, and we'll see what happens. It's not a great sign that Tyler Benson is getting, um, seems to be getting passed by him. And I've heard some people say, well, let's keep our eyes on the prize. We should be developing the kid, not the, the journeyman. But if your kid can't put distance between himself and the journeyman, I'm not saying that's like, means Ty, or Tyler Benson's buried, but it's, it's not a great sign that uh, Perlini's been clearly better. Well, and I think the thing with, like, training camp preseason, sort of the way that it exists right now, it's designed not to 
necessarily evaluate your known quantities or even reevaluate your known quantities. It's to sort of figure out where the unknown quantities are going to fit. Um, and like, for that reason, you know, I don't know that um, maybe Perlene is getting the chances to play because he's sort of an unknown quantity. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I've always I sort of felt that that's what it is. And that's why there's always these like training camp surprises because people don't know what they what they have to offer whereas like you know what other guys have to offer and so it's not really as important perhaps i would ag yeah i mean definitely i 100 percent agree with that is anyone who's considered a known quantity would be crazy to try their hardest during pre uh preseason as you just might get hurt there's just nothing to be gained um which is why you can't trust preseason numbers is half the guys in each game don't care and aren't trying and shouldn't be trying. That's like the smart thing of them to do. Uh, and then the other half of the guys are trying their absolute hardest because their careers hang in the balance. Which, I don't know, that brings me around to my the, what we were talking about beforehand. Is like, what exactly is the purpose of preseason? How much can coaches make out of that? Because we've all seen, yeah, sometimes you have a preseason surprise. And it's the beginning of a guy who, yeah, establishes himself as an NHLer. And we've also seen those Tyratty situations where... Oh no, this guy's uh, had two good weeks when not everyone was trying, and he's not like forget he's not the top sixer he maybe looked like. He's not an NHL player, and I think that you just can only make so much out of a small sample size, which is under weird conditions. And um, I'm not even sure. I don't know what the coach is even looking for, as coaches just respond in different ways. I've I've seen enough coaches to know that they seem to weigh it different they're instructing players differently they're analyzing them differently I, I don't know it's it's a mystery to me that's why i try to keep a wide berth from it honestly it really seems to just determine just your death battles the third and fourth line guys he writes even like you're not gonna it's not gonna determine who's gonna play in your first or second line because we know it's gonna be there there's no purpose to determine who's gonna be there we know it's gonna be mcdavid uh dry hopkins pulley rv like we know they're those battles are secure i think it's really just to determine your depth more or less well, and if that's the case, like, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but do we need to play preseason games in order to determine those things? Or, like, could we not just do, instead of actually games against other teams, could it not just be a bunch of inter-squad stuff to sort of figure out how they play and just kind of go from there? Because, like, I know training camp used to be when guys would come back to get in shape. Like, that was yeah. the whole point, is you would mm -hmm. use training camp as, as your as your opportunity to get back like in sort of game ready form. Right. And now everybody comes to training camp in the best shape of their life. And if they don't ever come to training camp in the best shape of their life every year, they're not doing their job in the off season. Mm -hmm. They get traded to Carolina. <laughs> Speaking of uh, some people on my Twitter timeline noticed that the Carolina hurricanes had a promoted tweet uh, about Ethan bear. Uh, and maybe it may or may not have been promoted uh, in and around this part of the world um, for fun. Maybe anyway, we can talk about that after. I just thought that was funny. That is fun. But like, so if that was the purpose of training camp before, right. Uh, and we're not talking about like, you know, in the forties, like we're talking like legit, not that long ago when guys would come to camp. To get ready to play, yeah, that's, not spend the whole off season getting ready to play. Like any of you who uh, you know are somewhat fit people, I uh, put myself in this category. If you sometimes work out, but you don't always work out, you know how it is. If you've taken a break and you get back to it, the first couple of weeks, your lungs kind of hurt, and you just have to get your body at peace with, oh, we're we're doing exercise again. Gotcha. And professional athletes used to be the same way. 
and now most of them aren't. They're just they've they've hit a higher level. So I totally agree with you. I don't think it's clear what the purpose is other than for like I think the teams like to make money. Like I can't believe they charge normal season prices for the preseason. And I also can't believe that people go. But then I think there's a really good counter argument to that. Like, so what if the games don't matter? I'm having fun. And then you ask, well, then what's really the purpose of any? Like, what are we keeping track for? What are we writing the stats down? Like, I don't know. It, I think it reveals the uh, ridiculousness of the whole professional sports uh, venture. Which... That's a really great point, how teams, yeah, it is a money-making venture. You know, they want to get the last drop of money out of your pockets for a preseason game. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's not that they'll charge eighty five bucks whatever to see you know uh, uh, two teams playing fourth line guys. But it's funny if you talk to the players though in any sport, be it hockey, basketball, whatever, they like it. They like having that game because they feel it gets them up. They feel it gets them up, up to speed. They don't like jump. They don't like jumping into the regular season immediately. They want to have a preseason game or two to get the feel of like what it's like again playing against the opposing team again. Okay, well let me uh, jump in here with this hot take. That's just more evidence that we should abolish the preseason. Nothing makes for more exciting <laughs> hockey than players who are off speed. Like, they will say, no, no, don't you want that graceful, crisp, precision play? And, yeah, it's ugly to watch defensemen just miss breakout passes and stuff like that. But the most exciting plays come from breakdowns. We want breakdowns. Breakdowns create excitement. That's when you get your odd man rushes, your breakaways, uh, your big hits, um, Big deeks, any anything that you want that requires someone to be out of position and off time. Mistakes need to be made. When no mistakes are getting made and two teams are playing perfectly against each other, it's its own kind of beauty and it's sort of, sort of inspiring, but it's way less exciting. I want those uh, cold, rusty, off time guys. And also, Megan, you made a good point about why don't we just do a bunch of intra squad games? Then you can have twice as many people playing. So that allows more people to get up to speed. The coaches get to assess more guys at the same time. Um, there's nothing but advantages. And you can still sell tickets to those if you want. Who cares? Get rid of the preseason. I want rustier, more confused players. That's the goal here. <laughs> well, and I also think that, like, the idea that, you know, something is all of a sudden going to change, you know, in a coach's perception of a player from one day of practice to the next, like... I mean, it's not the same, right? It's it's absolutely not the same thing. But, like, I, um, at school, like, I'm helping out with our football team and whatever. And, and I mean, we didn't end up cutting anyone this year for a whole bunch of reasons. But, like, you know, we, were, we had a conversation after our game this week about how, you know, this is our fifth game. And there are still, still guys that, like, in a normal year would have been cut, Right, because you know whatever it was, but it's been a year over a year since kids have played sports and blah blah blah. But I mean, in the training camp, like we only had for us, we only had two weeks um, before we had a game, and so like there's not a lot when you have say ninety percent of your of your team is like sort of un you know you're unsure of where they're gonna fit. Two weeks isn't a lot of time to like make those decisions. But in the NHL, it's not like spring training. It's not like NFL training camp. Right in the NHL, you have when you walk into training camp, you likely have seventy-five percent of your roster like solidified, not just like who's on the team, but also where they're playing. And so, like, really, the whole purpose of the training camp is maybe to work out some systems and figure out that other twenty-five percent. And so, if those guys aren't gonna play or play their hardest in the preseason, then what is the point in? having them 
play in a preseason at all. Yeah, I would add the coaches would be suckers to get blown away by preseason because anyone, well, not quite anyone, but a lot of NHL-ish guys can have two good weeks. But if you've got two years of someone's history, that's just going to tell you more about them. The best way to find out how someone's going to play is to look at a large history of how they have played to date. And um, the other thing, too, is even if someone actually has legitimately turned a corner, you'll figure that out in the, the two weeks after the season starts anyway. Like, plenty of times, someone's been sent down to the farm, and it's like, oh, actually, we blew it. That guy should be on the team. And you just make a quick switch. Like, that's that's not a big deal. I'm, I think there's there's just not that much of a gain to preseason. It's, it's about the money. There is... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Avery. As you mentioned, speaking of the preseason, and this is something I found very funny, but the, um, I think it was either the Hurricanes or the Canadians only played four preseason games, which to me is funny considering that every NHL team is in charge of scheduling a preseason game. So how can a team possibly play two less preseason games under your watch? <laughs> Well, I think that kind of underscores maybe the point is that like the preseason is ultimately not as important as, as they would like to think it is. And I think like, you know, we saw um, in the last Oilers game, right? We saw Zach Cassian get in a fight and mm. now he's in concussion protocol well, uh, as a result. And that's, that's a risk of, I mean, like the NFL, I think generally speaking, NFL preseason is pretty good because you don't normally see your starters in the preseason because like... Now all of a sudden they run the risk of getting hurt to in a, you know in 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 a preseason game that is legitimately meaningless. It doesn't do anything for seeding. It doesn't do anything for like draft pick purposes. Nothing. It's just to kind of like test some things out. And so now we have. I mean, we could talk about Zach Cassian's efficacy uh, all we want, and I don't think that would be a very long conversation. But I think you have a guy on your payroll who's now in concussion protocol because he got into a fight in a preseason game uh, that meant absolutely nothing. Well, okay, the, the argument that it's too big of an injury risk and your good players should not be playing very much because they don't need, if they're that good, they probably don't need very much uh, runway to get warmed up is an interesting one. Fighting in the preseason is, I feel, a slightly different category. I have a slightly, not radically, but a slightly non-popular take. Why don't you guys open with what I presume will be the more uh, popular on Twitter these days opinion on fighting in the preseason. Well, I just, I mean, uh, I, I think the preseason is a waste of time, so I think that fighting in the preseason is a double waste of time. Ultimately, uh, I get why people do it, but like my own personal opinion, it doesn't add anything to what is already a meaningless game. I feel the fight in the preseason, for Zach Cassian, like he is not someone as it stands right now who is at risk for losing roster spot. He doesn't, he doesn't have to prove anything to anybody right now. So to see him fight that spot, I just really did not get whatsoever and I gave him Vancouver. I think you make a decent point with Zach Cassian has an established reputation, but I've heard many people say fighting in the preseason is absolutely pointless. Now, it's different if you think fighting itself, writ large, is absolutely pointless. But the idea that fighting in the preseason is uniquely pointless, I'm going to uh, disagree with that a little. Fighting in the preseason serves two purposes. The one is... As it's the preseason, and you have a bunch of guys running around trying to do whatever it takes to get noticed, uh, they're going to 
they're going to just be running around a little bit more. So it might make some sense as a short-term deterrent. If you have a player who's very good at fighting and not necessarily very good at hockey, this is maybe the most use he'll be to you all season long. Because if he takes a bad penalty and you lose the game, who cares if he actually deters uh, any behavior? And you can then come back with, does fighting actually deter uh, any injurious behavior? And I'm not convinced it does. But if you think it's even a small deterrent, then this is actually, I would say the preseason is when you'd want guys fighting even more than in the regular season. Because you're just trying to say, hey, if you take, if like you point at some career AHL and say, you take another run at my star, I'm going to beat you up badly. You're going to feel pain and I'm going to be the one delivering it. If you have a sufficiently intimidating guy, like the John Scotts of the world should never make the NHL again. It makes a little bit of sense to have them on your team in the preseason because they actually are the kinds of guys, the Steve McIntyres, who say, I guarantee you I'm going to win the fight and I'm really going to hurt you if you take to the, um, what's that anti-vaxxer guy's name? Zach Ronaldo's. The other team's got a Zach Ronaldo in the preseason. You want him to know, just watch yourself or it's going to come back the other way. That one, I'm actually less certain. I think that when a million dollar contract's on the line, a lot of people are willing to get beaten up to get it, so I'm not sure how much fighting actually deters. But the other thing is now it's still attached to the same thing. Because wins and losses in the preseason doesn't matter, if you are a rougher player, now's the perfect time to make your reputation without costing your team. If you're an up-and-coming, tougher guy, and you want to... It's like it's a good time for an investment. Like Chris Pronger used to use the term investment suspensions. At the beginning of the year, he'd just like to hurt someone for no real reason just so the rest of the league would know that he's still capable of hurting people. And then, um, you know, that would just be in people's heads. And so maybe he'd lose a game, but it was a good investment in his reputation. That at least cost him, like cost his team, Chris Pronger, for a game or two. If you get suspended for a preseason game or two, who cares? Not even suspended. Maybe you just get a penalty. Maybe you got to sit down for five minutes, uh, and so that's not even a huge thing. The preseason is the best time to make that investment because you still establish what you need to establish which is that you're a tough guy but it uh, the penalty part hurts less it arguably doesn't hurt at all so from an investment point of view the rational thing is to be as rough as you possibly can in the preseason just to let people know in the future hey i'm someone who can handle himself and again you could say well that's entirely pointless if you think fighting is entirely pointless it's certainly not any less pointless in the preseason but if you think fighting plays some small uh, practical role, then its practical role is probably actually bigger in the preseason because the penalty is lower. That's my thought. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Like I don't, I, I, I think that there's a value to that if you're trying to establish that particular role. Right. Or you don't have a roster spot. And it's like, this is the thing that's going to set me apart from whatever, like that. I can, I can, I can get behind that. But I think like in this particular case with Zach Cassian, who's got a spot on the roster, he's got the contract. Like this isn't him fighting for the rest of his career, right? This is him getting in a fight in a preseason game. Uh, I think doesn't serve that purpose. Like it's not setting a tone. It's not doing anything that we don't already know Zach Cassian is capable of doing. Like he's not, you know what I mean? Like he's not somebody coming up from the minor leagues to like make a statement or whatever. And I feel like that in that particular respect, that's now putting the team at a disadvantage because he's now going to be out for 
a length of time while he's in concussion protocol. Well, he had a pretty terrible season last season. I could see him trying to reestablish his reputation as he spent a lot of last year uh, either hurt or just being, to be honest, fairly meek and mild, um, uncharacteristically so. And maybe he felt the need, or it could have been the, the other thing, that maybe he felt that someone on the other team was playing dangerously and if you're ever going to fight to defend your teammates the preseason's in many ways the perfect time to do it because I would say your teammates might be at a higher risk of injury because you got more guys really going 100% reckless to try and stand out so I I mean I didn't see the game I don't actually know what precipitated the fight but uh I would agree that if it was a you know the old um showdown style of hey do you want to go at the at the draw so that we can both look tough that would have been probably very silly but if it was actually in response to something someone else is doing then that's kind of zach cassian earning his 3.2 million and again i know some of you people at home you might be saying no the fighting doesn't actually do anything to be honest at this point it doesn't matter if it does anything because zach cassian and Kalen holland both believe it does so if you believe fighting does something this is when you do it if they're mistaken in that belief, that's a different thing. But if they believe it does something, then the preseason is as good a time as any for it to do that thing. Because it's not about wins and losses. Hang on, hang on, guys. My, my computer froze on me. Hang on one second. My computer oh, God. Don't edit this part out. The people at home need uh, yeah. to see the pains we go through. That's yeah, true. Uh, so that's like, okay. So, uh, I don't... You're right, I think, about the GM... If the GM values it, then it's a valuable thing. But, like, from the perspective of... I mean, I don't know. If you're living in a world where Zach Cassian's your favorite NHL player, I guess that's a world I don't want to live in. But, like, um, you know... But the, but I'm thinking about it from, like, a fan perspective, right? And I'm not saying that, like, you're going to get your... Uh, that you're going to have your, like, superstars, you know, get in fights in the preseason. Um, generally speaking, your superstars aren't going to get in fights anyway. But... You know, if all of a sudden, like, your favorite NHL player is out for however long because of, like, the effects of that preseason fight, I don't know. Like, there's, to me, there's a whole bunch of different ways to look at the benefit or, like, the cost-benefit analysis of the fighting in the preseason. Is there a point to it? Sure. I'm not opposed to fighting in hockey. I don't particularly care one way or the other. Um, but, like, I'm not opposed to it. I'm not solely in favor of it either. But, like, uh, it's part of the game. It happens. It's a thing. I think it's really dumb when... You know, you can see the guys jawing each other, like, in the face-off circle. And then they just, like, start fighting. That's a different question, right? Um, but all of a sudden, I don't know. I just feel like there's something about that fighting in the preseason. If we're already going to sort of concede that the preseason is meaningless and shouldn't be happening, then why the fighting? That's really my question. Well, I'll tie... I'll build on that. So here's another preseason question. Why are the Oilers trying that hard to tie it? tie the game in the dying minutes where they or even in the I think in the last game they started the game with uh, Dreisaitl and McDavid on the same line why are you playing with any desperation at all in the preseason is the preseason not the ideal time to just be trying to develop new chemistries and develop new looks you know McDavid and Dreisaitl work very well together why are you even trying that like what are you trying to establish you think it'll help you win who cares if you win? It's the preseason. Winning should be as small a concern as you can psychologically get away with it being. Your only goals are to get your players warmed up and maybe like learn some, try some new roster things as a coach and see how they work. 
what's the point of uh, like they really and people on Twitter also like this isn't just the team. People seem pumped that they tied the game against uh, Calgary there in the last minute, and then I think they won in overtime. Why? Who cares? It's the preseason. There's zero net gain from that other than that little serotonin burst of my team won, which to be fair is the only point to any of this. So maybe I am wrong by pretending that the playoffs matter in the preseason don't when they're equally pointless to the universe. But uh, yeah, I don't know. What are we doing in the preseason? That brings us back to, I think, the basic question. What are we doing in the preseason? Why are we doing this? Again, Keep on hockey up. takes itself too seriously to care about a preseason win way too seriously. Well, it does. And it also, like, I mean, maybe it's because the teams that you play in your preseason are, like, your divisional rivals. And so, like, it's, you know, some people think it's a good check to kind of see, like, where things are going to be. I don't know. I'm just, I see that look you're giving me. I've just, it's just speculation. I have no idea. No, that makes sense. I'm sorry. My uh, look wasn't even directed to you. My cat is being very <laughs> mischievous. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I'm a competitive person. I try to win when I play shinny. So I get why the the players are doing it. It's I think more from the coaches and the management's point of view. Like what are we what do we want our players to accomplish? I I don't know. Yeah, I don't I'm unclear. I don't have an I, answer, well, but mean, it's a mystery. I guess like I was thinking about it as you were as you were saying uh before. Like perhaps maybe if you're working on systems and that kind of thing, if you have a new coach then I can see why that might be a thing that where maybe training camp in the preseason games matter a little bit more because you have a new coach with new systems and stuff. But if you have a coach that's returning and you have the bulk of your roster returning, I can't see that it's going to be like appreciably different, right? I can't see, it's not like you're learning a brand new playbook um, every year, right? And so I can't see that, that certain things aren't going to be basically the same and transferable from year to year. And I also think, generally speaking, from coach to coach, things are mostly going to be transferable, especially in hockey. I don't think that there's a lot of, I don't think there's a lot of strategy that is different uh, between the 32 uh, head coaches in the NHL because they're the same 32 people who are always coaching in the NHL. So, like, it's not that different, right? But, like, maybe I can, I can see if you have big turnover, a bunch of young guys coming in, um, or just guys that are new to the team, you know, lost a bunch to free agency and whatnot. I can see maybe the need for the preseason games to kind of like gel as a team. But mm-hmm. I also think that like, I also think that the gelling as a team part doesn't need to be done where the public can see. Yeah. I mean, I don't care if people want to like go to pay to see practices, maybe that would be neat. But I, I, I just don't think it's, I would agree that the public does need to see it. And uh, I guess I see what you say. It's a good time to make your reputation. If uh, you're kind of a fringe player and you want the new coach to like you, if you'd like, this is your big chance to become the coach's pet, I suppose. But, but beyond that, it seems like, like not wasted effort, but definitely uh, what's, what the reaction that it gets is maybe outsized to what value it actually provides. It's a warm-up lap. You don't run a warm-up lap to win. You run a warm-up lap to win the race which is coming up after the warm-up lap. Right. And it's a long race. And those six games that you, those six warm-up laps you do before the 82 real laps are kind of meaningless when it, and like in the grand scheme of things. They're entirely they meaningless. Help, they, don't add, they don't add points or whatever in the standings. Yeah, I don't like seeing it. I would say that like going beyond fighting, I don't like seeing any players get injured in the preseason. If you're going to get injured, you should get injured in the game for my amusement, not... Mm-hmm. in the side thing when I'm not even paying attention. Okay. Yeah, it's... 
Is Avery's computer still frozen? I want to get to the bottom of this mystery. I'm working on it. I don't know why it froze on me out of the blue. Well, your voice is still coming through crystal clear. Yeah, but I bet you he's not recording, so no one, no one can hear anything that he's saying. So, uh, we can, we'll keep talking. I, I sent him a message. I was like, reboot, we can vamp, it's fine. Um, okay, so assuming the training camp still, this, here's a question for you. Here's like a, something to think about. Assuming the training camp still needs to be a thing, because it does, right? You can't just like oh, come yeah. in off of an off season. Like, you have to have a training camp of some kind. It's not obviously for guys to get back in shape, but it's definitely a necessary part of what happens so if we if we think that the preseason games are like a waste of time whatever how do you change that training camp that like preseason structure to make it more meaningful and more useful perhaps and instructive for coaches and management than the format that we have now what's the is there a solution or is it just a nothing burger i'll throw out uh, an idea off the top of my head is to like more formally divide the games between vets and kids if you have a bunch of, like, fringish players who are trying to establish themselves and, like, make their reps and whatever, play them against each other, and they can go 100% and good for them. And then your top six forwards and top four defensemen can play another game, which is going to look like an old-timers beer league game, where they're just kind of skating around, throwing passes, getting their timing back, but no one's even, like, they don't even have to keep score. <laughs> the difference it makes. Either that or... Well, I mean... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, like, it, when the, I used to really like when the Oilers um, rookies would play the Golden Bears. That was always, like, one of my favorite things to do. And cool. I found that to be probably, the, of all of the preseason games, I always found that to be, A, probably the most useful. Um, because you can see where these guys, these kids match up against, like, legitimate hockey players, not just, mm -hmm. like, you know, coming straight out of junior. But it was also, like, a nice little community fan service kind of thing I, and it was cheap when it was still at the U of A. Yeah, I agree. I liked it. It was nice. It was a good showcase for them. It was clearly a lot of fun for the Bears. I think they really got up for the game. Um, it was really cool. That's where Rod Tremp did the, the cross move mid-game. I was at that game. That was one of the coolest things I had ever seen. I'd never seen that before. It blew my mind. Um, yeah, the other thing, I actually, the more I think about it, the more I like your notion of why don't we just do more intra-squad games. You just don't send guys down as early. You keep more people up. I think that would also cut down on injuries because you wouldn't have guys think like, I'm going to go take that dude out. That's your teammate. You can't take him out. It would certainly put tough players like the, um, not even necessarily the Ronaldos of the world, but I'm trying to think of, you know, like a young guy who's, he's more like, I'm going to forecheck tenaciously. I'm going to finish my hits. Maybe uh, the, the Tulipovs of the world, maybe you don't want them finishing their hits, and that doesn't allow them to look as good. I can see why there's no perfect solution for everyone, but I think that once you, if you have just a bunch of guys playing their teammates, that'll cut down on injuries. That still gives people a chance to get the timing back, work their legs out, knock off the rust, showcase themselves, and the coaches actually see more of their players for more time. I think you probably get more bang for your buck developmentally out of that than you do out of uh, these games. Well, I think I saw that the Canucks, it took them a long time to send anybody down. Like, they were one of the last teams, I think, to send anybody down. And I don't know if it was for that reason or whatever, but it just seems to me that if you have this opportunity to evaluate this talent inside the system that they're going to be playing in, it would kind of make sense um, that you keep them for as long as you can, even if you know 
they're not going to make the team. When I was a kid, I used to want them to keep the players, the fringe guys, as long as possible because, you know, I like my long shot stories. I like to cheer for those guys. I will say now, as a ruthless old man, I send everybody down as fast as possible. If the main thing you're doing this for is to help the vets gel together, knock the rest off, you have a pretty good idea of who is or isn't making the team. And I'll add, even if you make a mistake, if you accidentally send the wrong guy down, you should notice that like a week into the season. Like, oh no, he's really doing well in the AHL. We might have made a mistake. Maybe we should have, just to pick on a random dude, maybe we shouldn't have signed Col- Colton Savoir. Maybe we actually should have sent him. Well, we'll just send him down now and call Cooper Merity up now. There's no reason you're not committed mm-hmm. to that for like months. You can change course on that decision two weeks in. Oh, now I'm back, y'all. Now I'm back to recording again. Thank God. Oh, good. Whew. We're out of the desert. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did enjoy the um, the cranky old man thing about just send them all down. How how the, the hockey years were beating Stephen down, we just want them all sent down. There's no more hope. Send them all down. Relegate the entire <laughs> so league. So here's a thought that I just had. Like, and I know it's different. Obviously, other sports the way they structure things. But like, I get why from a, like a practical perspective this would not be very feasible but like what if training camp opened and with the NHL team and like their AHL affiliate together mm-hmm. instead of separate where then you have this opportunity with like your AHL coaching staff to sort of figure out some best fits and they also are going to have some ideas about your um your guys that are up from your farm team or guys that played in the AHL last year, maybe with other teams who've signed, you know, some kind of a two-way deal or whatever. Um, And I get, again, practicality says this is like virtually impossible, but to me, it sort of means like, I don't necessarily trust NHL scouts. I don't necessarily trust pro scouting in general, because I think most GMs either don't listen to their scouts or have bad scouts. And so I kind of feel like it would be a nice idea to be able to see and get the perspective from those other coaches who've worked with some of those players before. Be like, yeah, this is what this is what we see, and this is sort of how this is going to fit into the system. Uh, I mean, I could, that might be a lot of people. Like, that's kind of why I'm now of the send them all down thing, is you can just have an unwieldy amount of people, too many cooks in the kitchen or what have you not just in the coaches but the players too like you want a manageable group of of uh of human beings in the area so i could see how that might be too busy although i do very much take your point and i I, to be fair though i do think this usually happens that the ahl coaches are constantly talking to the gm and saying oh this guy's doing well this guy's not doing so well this is someone you maybe want to call up i don't know about this dude like i think a lot of that is already happening i don't know but I don't know. I guess I'll defer to somebody who's actually in in the front office. I don't have a super educated opinion on that. Well, they haven't yep. hired me yet, so I don't actually know how it works. It's uh, the problem is cowardice. <laughs> you know, I I can see what that would be a lot of bodies to what a training camp. You usually what 50, 60 bodies. You add what 15, 20 more. I can see that could be a bit much on top of the AHL coaches. On top of adding, say, you know, Jay Woodcroft and his staff in Bakersfield. Interesting idea, though. Interesting idea to get some other perspectives on that team because you look at Edmonton. Maybe someone else from Edmonton's side of view from Bakersfield might say, "Yeah, this guy should be here. This guy shouldn't be here in Edmonton. Or he should be in Bakersfield or down East HL." But it's an idea that maybe, maybe one day it'll work. One day when the Oilers do end up buying the entire city Edmonton one day, and they can use all the rings for their own their own rosters. 
Well, and that's why I like the practice, just for, for like, practicality's sake, it's not, it's, like, nearly impossible. But, like, if you're in yeah. Detroit and your farm team's in, in Grand Rapids, like, that's absolutely something that would be manageable. Sure. And right, or if in, instead of having, instead of having, like, your general training camp kind of open, like, you have, because I know they do, like, captain skates and whatever, I don't particularly care, but, like, maybe you have, you know, like, your, your young guns, anyone who's, like, you know, 25 and under, whatever comes, or 24 and under, and they come um for like that first five or six days and then you bring in your vets and, and whatever and that just kind of gives you that extra opportunity to, to evaluate some talent and sort of figure out how things That's are going to go because otherwise i don't know and even, even in toronto the marlins at least playing the same they literally play in two arenas that are a 10 minute walk from each other like i i can walk from retail uh, i can walk from Gold Coast coliseum to uh Scotia Bank arena and they and there's a big arena in in the saga the Ford, uh, Ford Performance Center, where there are two rings, one for the Marlies and one she's for the Maple Leafs, that they both skate on every week. So it's either in Toronto. Yeah, and I just, I don't know, maybe that maybe that makes the whole like preseason training camp format maybe a little bit more interesting because you have sort of, here's your whole pool of talent right in front of you instead of just parts of it. I don't know. I don't think it's practical. I don't think it'll ever happen. But anyway, what is the preseason for? Absolutely nothing. That's my conclusion. Gouging the fans. <laughs> yeah, some good old gouging. It's always a good time to gouge. That's what I say. There's that. Um, okay, uh, Avery, you wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, speaking of like preseason stuff, uh, some of the coverage coming out of the States um, of the NHL on TNT and ESPN. Uh, yeah, so yeah, this is the first year of NHL on TNT coverage. And they have their, you know what, so first, first things first, they score blog views for TNT. Much cleaner, much better. It's a nice, very clean scoreboard. It shows shots on goal, uh, periods. Not very, uh, not very um, outrageous all that much. It's a very clean format. And their broadcast panel to start the year is um, Liam McHugh's hosting for NBC. Anthony Carter, Rick Tockett, Paul Bissonnette, Wayne Gretzky as their main panel. And from what I saw the first little bit, it's okay. You know what? There's a little bit of chemistry between Tockett and Anthony Carter, which I thought was kind of cool. And um, and then of course you're gonna have also contributions from Tarek Al Bashir and Jackie Redman who are gonna be like their reporters for the, the program. You know what though? I do I like what we have so far. far. I do I like, like what he's doing a little bit. bit. You know, it's, the names are well known, but I do want to see eventually TNT bring in some newer voice because you're a new broadcaster. You shouldn't just be going out there and bring only names you've been known for. 10 to 15, 15 years, because in, in America, America there's like people across this country, America and Canada, who've worked in hockey, who would love a shot to make their debut on national TV, on the NHL, on TNT, and on ESPN, they have their panel where they have um, John Tortorella, they got Kim Weeks on there, they have John Buchigross posting most of the content, Emily Kaplan's on there as well too, for their new To The Point series, they also have uh, Chelios Messier, and again, First, first few shows, not too bad, but what I really want to see again, like like TNT, ESPN, who are the hockey talents in these networks or in this country that we don't know about yet? Who's that? Un, who's the unfound talent that could be a star for both broadcasts? That's what you should be doing for these new deals, you know? Shouldn't just be all the names we've been seeing on TV for the past 25 years. Well, it would be different if the names, like, I sort of, I don't know, okay. Cut that part, Megan. Let's. Well, I'm gonna start again. Here's me being uh, eloquent. I kind of agree with you. I. Uh, yeah. 
I don't think that the new talent necessarily deserve. Like, I don't think that NBC is under, or sorry, TNT, whomever, the TV, the powers that be. I don't think they have a moral obligation to find us new voices, but the old voices are bad. They're not good at it. It would be different if the NHL broadcasts were really good. Then, yeah, fine, screw the new voices. Just keep the people who are good at it on forever. I don't care. It's not, you don't have, like, an inherent human right to get your shot at being on a national TV broadcast if the people above you are awesome at it, but they're not awesome at it. Many of them are terrible at it. I don't understand why they keep trying something that doesn't work. Like, even to say that it's mediocre is, I feel, like, generous to it. Like, so many uh, broadcasters I mute. Um, and then when someone comes along who's pretty good at it, like, Kevin Bieksa, for me, was, like, a revelation in hockey watching because he made the intermissions interesting as opposed to, I'm going to change the channel and I'm not even going to look at this again in 15 minutes. So he elevated it up to pretty good, and that was a dramatic improvement. No, I think most of the, the established people are terrible. So in that sense, yes, I agree. They should be trying a wild variety of different things, which is also how uh, NHL teams should use their farm teams. They should be trying like weird, wacky roster combinations, coaching strategies. Uh, we should be more experimentation should be encouraged. That uh, leads to better development. Well, and I think the other thing too, the the one thing that I think is really interesting about broadcasting and stuff. You say like most of the voices are terrible, and I would agree. Uh, I think Liam McHugh hosting that. I think he's very good at what he does. But I think like there's this weird thing in hockey that exists there in ways that it doesn't necessarily exist in other sports to the same degree but like it's like oh you used to play therefore you must be good to talk about it and it's like that doesn't that's not true uh just because rick tockett played hockey once upon a time doesn't mean he's gonna be good talking about it just because wayne gretzky is quote unquote the greatest player of all time heavy on the quotes on that one um, doesn't mean he's going to be the greatest broadcaster of all time. I would argue he won't even be the greatest member of that panel. Um, and like, I just, there's something about that that I find just really, it's a weird gatekeepy kind of thing that happens in hockey. Whereas like, I found like watching baseball, watching football. Yeah. You need like old football players to call football games. Sure. And generally speaking, I enjoy most football broadcasts. Right, because you got a team of guys. There's two guys, and they work together in the booth for the whole season, and they build a rapport. And it's partially, it's not just calling the game, but there's like the other stuff as well. And I just find that these like in studio panels, they tend to just throw guys out there who want to be on TV, and not like I don't know. There's just it, they just don't really always work for me, and I don't I don't know if there's a solution yeah, to it. Like, um, because the other thing too is if you're a fan in an emerging market or whatever, are you gonna watch a panel? of a bunch of unknowns. Like, that's the whole thing, right? And I, so I get why the name draw is an important thing. But I, I don't know that the names they're drawing from are the best names. It makes some yeah. sense to me to have Gretzky and Messier on there because they are so overpoweringly famous. But um, oh, they are. most of the other players, like, eh, I don't know. Like, I get why they have Paul Bissonnette on there. He's become quite famous. I don't know if he'll be good or bad. I don't listen to his show. Um, but if he's, like... You know, you need people to be watching. So I understand the importance of some fame. But uh, I would agree with you that, like, I already uh, named um, Ferraro. And I think that, or sorry, I named uh, BX. And I think most people agree that Ferraro is one of, if not the best, commentator out there. But another really good commentator is Justin Bourne, who went to NHL training camps. But he never made, to my knowledge, an NHL team. He was, like, a, a 
career farm teamer. Um, but he does really good instructional videos and like, that's, uh, what I like tactical videos is maybe a better way to put it. Cause he's not like teaching you how to play. He's teaching you what to look for when you're, when you're looking at a game. I would like to see more of that, of people who are actually adding to my knowledge of the game in a somewhat charismatic way. Uh, there was a quote was going around. One of the dudes was saying, I'm really pumped to get away from tactical discussions and just tell more stories. I like stories too. If you've got good people telling stories, like the TNT basketball broadcast, they swap a lot of stories because they have like four or five very entertaining guys. If you can get four or five very entertaining guys, yeah, by all means, tell me old stories. I love old stories. Um, but I don't want more like just yammering nonsense. It's, it's got to be good. It should be just cycling guys in and out of there all the time trying to find who's got the charisma and the knowledge to make this work. And it should be. Like, I, that'd be, I think that's the next that they should be doing. Yeah, cycling. Who works? Like, who actually works? And that's the one thing, too, is, like, with I watch NFL broadcasts and I watch NBA broadcasts, and you see the panels there, and you get a real sense of belief that these guys all are hanging with, with each other away from, the, away from the broadcast desk. You can tell that guys like like um, Shaq and Charles Barkley, Tayspin, all are hanging with, with each other away from broadcasting. With hockey, it's very much it's very much randomly. It's very much you know, can we try Tortorella with Messier and with et cetera, et cetera? And it, you know what? Sure, could it work? Sure, but it you have to convince me that there's a chemistry there to an extent. And you mentioned tactical stuff. For example, someone does a really good job with that for a new market is on Root Sports. Um, you know, Crack and Allison Lucan. She's on their panel there, and she is big in analytics. She broke down in a very, in a very step-by-step way of how what a high danger, what a high danger chance was, and it was so concise and it was so late. It, it was on such a layman's term way that anyone would understand. Oh, a high danger chance is a shot in front of the net within five feet. It wasn't talking down to the audience. Like that was so refreshing to see. Yeah. Which I, I I saw some reaction to her like her being on and uh, like just on Twitter and whatever and like there's lots of people that are pretty stoked and it's true because she does a really good job of breaking stuff down in a way that like ordinary people can understand uh, and I think we've talked before on here about like if you want to grow the game you have to like the, you have to attract people who don't know anything about the game you have to figure out a way to do that and one of the ways that you do that is through sort of accessibility in that coverage and and giving people you know. Make, letting people have the opportunity to learn about the game in a way that doesn't feel like they're being talked down to. And one of the problems with those panels, um, when you have just a bunch of like old-timey hockey players, is that there is, whether or not, I saw a comment about it with uh, baseball last night too, someone was like, Babe Ruth last played baseball like a hundred years ago, could we please use a different player for reference? Um, and it's a fair point, but whereas if you don't know anything about the game, and you might know who Wayne Gretzky is, sure, maybe, but like maybe you don't, right? And so maybe like having that as your the sort of like here's the here's the draw is only going to be the draw for people who grew up with that, and not for those people that we want to attract to the game, right? And so I don't know, I don't know if there's a solution again, because who's going to watch if there's no known quantities on those broadcasts? Mm, I'm. I believe that there are probably some youngins who don't know who Wayne Gretzky is, but he uh, he might be more famous than every other hockey player added together. Like, I get why they're prioritizing some fame, but uh, I would agree that a quality product, not just for growing the game, for getting me to watch it. You want me, if you want mm-hmm. me 
been watching hockey my whole life. I learned things from Ferraro and BX at times, and I like that. I don't recall the last time I learned something. from. I guess I won't pick on some of the dudes who haven't taught me anything. I never learned anything from Mike Milbury. He didn't even tell good <laughs> stories. That's the problem. Like, yeah, man, tell me what it's like to beat a man with his own shoe. That sounds interesting. I don't want to just my, hear you uh, yammer on about who you don't like. My most enduring memory of Mike Milbury was from when I was a child. Uh, I'm, I assume he was coaching in Boston at the time. And I have this like, very clear memory uh, of him, of the camera being trained on him on the bench, swearing at the ref, and it's the first time I ever figured out how to lip-read the word fuck. <laughs> so that is, like, my most enduring memory of, of Mike Milbury. So anytime I would see him on a panel, um, that's what I would think of, is how he introduced me uh, to a real bad word. To cussing. Um, when I was, like, seven or eight or whatever. What a legacy. Um, yeah, I mean, look where I am now. Um, not really swearing on a podcast about hockey. Um, but no, I just, it, it's because you're right. I think the if you learn stuff from the people on the panel, that's kind of what it's supposed to be about. I don't need, I don't, and like a guy like Elliot Friedman uh, on a panel, he's got insider knowledge that like other people don't have. And sometimes it's interesting and sometimes it's not. And that's fine. Um, but for a while there when Sportsnet had like Nick Kiprios and guys like that on, it was just, a waste of time and so I'm glad they moved away from that at least and got rid of some of those people because um, talk about not learning from people on a panel there's someone I never learned anything from oh jeez Tactical person. Tactical person. Yeah, storytelling yeah, story is, is, is a massive thing in terms of broadcast. Like, 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 Seriously. Because again, because again like, at the end of the day, end of the day hockey, hockey is entertainment. entertainment. It's not it's life, not and, life death, and death, and nor should it be. Other sports, Other sports understand, understand that. that. Like, like baseball. Like, like, like baseball, baseball panel. panel with, um, Alex Rodriguez. Alex Rodriguez. Always on with David Ortiz. Those two are hilarious Those two are comedy together. In hockey, like... We need to realize, need to realize this, is sport. this is sport, and sport, and sport shouldn't, shouldn't always be so buttoned up and so stiff when the camera well, I was thinking about the baseball thing, and I was thinking about the Fox NFL Sunday crew too, like that that their their studio their studio panel. Uh, there's five guys, and they've all got they all offer very different things to that panel. So you've got Kurt Metafee as your host, and you've got Terry Bradshaw, and you know he's he's the old quarterback, and and you've got Michael Strahan, who's like kind of branched out and you know into others so like entertainment industry stuff but we still can talk about the game and so you've got like these different personalities and when you put the five of them together it works right because they do have this sort of this camaraderie and you can tell that they like each other and they spend some time together and whatnot whereas like i'm never sure that the people on a hockey panel have ever like been in the same room with each other other than being on camera together <laughs> I, I do I, know, I do know for the record, though, that Jeff Merrick and Ellie Fielder are good friends. I've been to those two guys, and they are, like, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Don Cherry on McLean, how they said how, yeah, once we're out of the studio, we don't talk to each
for developing the developer more at times can be either great or backfire. Like, it's gotten to the point, in my opinion, anyway, that the majority of hockey coverage is, like, more or less unwatchable. Uh, I'll watch the games to watch the game, and if I could ever figure out how to sync up, like, the TV broadcast with the radio broadcast, I would do that. Because then I don't need to listen to anything anyone on TV has to say. Yeah. That's... And I think that's probably, I, I don't think that's necessarily a thing that uh, people in team and league offices would want to hear, you know, that the, the, the actual coverage of the product is unwatchable. No, I'm sure they'd rather it was good, but uh, I don't know. I just don't think it is. Well, I, well, I, I don't think it is either. Sorry, if you go ahead. I was going to mention, well, mention, well, this should be an open door. Yeah, we're out of the comments to the game. You have to offer the wolf back. You know, this is first year doing HL commentary. I'm really looking Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I guess we never actually said that on here because we said it last time, but that never worked out. Yeah, Alex, it's... Alex uh, Alex Thomas, formerly of the Oilers Rig, is now the play-by-play uh, -play guy and the director, I believe, the, the communications director for the Hartford Wolf Pack of uh, the AHL. And at some point in time, we'll have him back here as a guest to sort of talk about what that transition has been like and whatnot. Um, but he, he and Avery and I have been talking about stuff, and one of the things that uh, was interesting is the team didn't really release information right away about him taking that job, um, but they just kind of mentioned him in an article about how the old play-by-play -play guy wasn't coming back and they're like oh he's being replaced by this guy and then they waited another like three weeks to actually make the formal announcement um but yeah so he's got himself like a real job in the field that he went to school to learn how to be part of which i think is pretty great yes yeah. way to uh, go yeah, maybe. and uh maybe uh one day he'll get to call like a rangers game or something that'd be that'd be pretty great um that would be because uh that would be that would be good to be able to hear a familiar voice. Um, Jack Eichel. Do we have thoughts on Jack Eichel? I know you have some thoughts on Jack Eichel. Uh, yeah, but I don't know if I... Avery, do you have lots of thoughts on Jack Eichel? I think it's I kind of silly that the Sabres are like, you can't, have, can't have the surgery done. done. And, and my thing is that like, if it's better if it's than a neck fusion, which cannot be undone, undone, let him have the surgery. surgery, let his quality of life be a little bit better, better. Like, let him like, get let this disc replacement surgery. surgery. I know it has not been done on a hockey player, but it has been done before, I believe on Satwaz, players, and pro wrestlers, and boxers. It's been done after before. Hockey player, let it be the first. If he feels it's done, and Dr. Seth has said before that this is safer than the next surgery. And if it doesn't work, it can be undone. Let him do it. Let him stop being in this much pain. And let him actually get a chance to play again. The thing with the Sabres, it has gone from bad to worse. And you might not see him play again until 2022. Or maybe not even 2023 at this point by now. I don't know. That sounds right to me. I think that he should probably be able to make his own medical call. I haven't been following that uh, issue too closely. I'm a little bit curious if he is using his uh, this medical disagreement just to force the Sabres' hand because um, he clearly really wants to leave the team. Um, but I don't know. He's certainly really gone to bat for, no, no, this is a medical consideration. I'm not in the... Uh, maybe it is. The main thing I have to say about Jack Eichel, that all sounds correct to me, is uh, I really hope he goes to Calgary. 
I think that would be by far the most interesting thing that were to happen. I don't think they have an obvious package for him, but if they can find a way to keep Matt Kachuk and get Jack Eichel, I think that would make the NHL a much more interesting place to, or a much more interesting thing to follow. I think multiple Eichel versus McDavid matchups uh, would be great. Just great. Well, and I think I think the thing with the question with the medical stuff, like I think about it in, from a perspective of, of here's a person who understands, like he's what 24, 25, 24? 24, yeah. Um, yeah, he need, he knows. Like I, I find it hard to believe that the Sabers know what he needs better than he knowing what he needs, right? And so, like, I understand from like their own sort of investment financial perspective, their reticence to let him get this surgery. I get it because there's like an investment protection sort of consideration. I would, I assume sort of at play here, but at the end of the day, like if he can't play, then it's a sunk cost anyway, because, because like, you're not going to get anything for him. If he has to go, if he goes on LTIR at 24 or 25 and never plays hockey again, because, because they won't let him get this surgery. Like to me, that's a waste of, it is. Maybe, you, know, you know, I just accused Eichel of uh, being disingenuous. I'll flip that. Maybe the Sabres think that they're better off letting his new team make this call, and so they're just staging this fight so that they can delay anything from happening, um, which kind of makes sense to me. As if I was The one thing the Sabres are doing that makes that I think is a good decision, I'm not sure that the way they're handling the neck injury is, is the right call, but I think they're making the right decision to wait. Don't rush a trade. Let the right trade come to you. I think that is like the overriding lesson of the Matt Duchesne saga in Colorado is if you just wait, eventually someone is going to say, you know, you have an elite player. Here's a good deal for him. And you could uh, get something that could really help turn your franchise around. So I like the way they're in no hurry to make this trade. I think they're kind of dynamiting their reputation around the league. So I'm, I'm mystified. Well, that's a bad way to put it. I'm curious as to why they think the way they're handling this neck injury is the best, is for in anyone's best interest. But I do like the way they're just waiting. Like if they wait, maybe they can get Matt Boldy and Marco Rossi out of uh, Minnesota. That would be like those two guys for Eichel mm-hmm. is a pretty good deal for them, I would say. Um, and maybe they feel all they have to do is wait. But uh, I, I don't know. It just, it feels like it looks like you say they're kind of suing their own reputation. And the thing that I find really interesting is, like, at some point in time, Buffalo's going to need to try and attract players to come and play in Buffalo. And, like, this does not seem to be a thing that would curry any favor with anybody who's looking for a place. Unless they're just going to throw bags of money at them, which, as we've seen, is not something that the that ownership is uh, likely going to want to do. So, like, it seems kind of counterproductive to do all of this when you know that in the future you're going to have to try and get people to come and play in your city, and they're not going to want to do that. And the great example that is the drafting goal in power. You're back to Michigan, Michigan again. again. And if I went to someone, someone like Kip, like Kip you know, I would have stayed in Buffalo, Buffalo, Buffalo and go that gauntlet right now. Especially now. We don't know for sure if the team can get NIL deals yet. But if they still believe the Canadians can benefit from NIL deals, then if I'm a team in college, I'm going to go to Buffalo if I can play hockey, make money, and do all the headaches of the Sabres. 
Well, I heard a joke. I read a joke um, after the draft that Owen Power was very clearly going to stay at Michigan and get his PhD before he ever showed up to training camp. That <laughs> um, was really funny. Um, uh, and then there were people like being like, it would be dumb for him to stay at the same school to do his like undergrad and all of his graduate work. And I was like, you're missing the point clearly. Um, but just to avoid having to play in Buffalo. But I kind of feel like if that's the case and, and you know, you have this draft pick, I mean, sure, he can go back to college and he w- always had that freedom to make that choice. But like, you got to wonder if it was a, a franchise that wasn't being run like a Mickey Mouse organization, maybe he wouldn't, maybe he'd be at a training camp right now instead of in school. Uh, and whether that changes anything for him in the future, I don't know. Um, but it's an interesting decision to make because I would imagine if like somehow, I don't know, Tampa Bay had had that first overall pick, you know, through a trade or whatever, uh, he'd probably be at camp right now instead of back at school. Um, I mean, maybe, obviously I don't know Owen Power personally. I did hear that him and a couple like Michigan is going to have an elite team. And that they feel they were, like their young players feel they were robbed of their chance to be the the hockey version of the Fab Five uh, by COVID. And so that they were apparently just, they're placing a high personal premium on coming back and playing this NCAA season together. So I'm not, it's hard to say how much of that is on the Sabres. I will say, I bet he would have been more tempted if he was, uh, say, a Rangers first overall draft pick. Like, that might have made it a tougher decision for him, even if the going to the Sabres um, isn't what he was actively trying to avoid. It's maybe easier to say, no, I won't go to the Sabres, than no, I won't go to the Kings, or whomever. Yeah, that's maybe fair. I don't know. I just, I don't know, just, everything I hear about the Sabres and whatever, they're just not doing anything that's going to endear, I don't think, endear the franchise to yeah, anyone. I will say, I think, especially think losing slash small market teams need to do whatever they can to make themselves seem like attractive landing places, and I'm a little bit confused as to why the Sabres, what the Sabres think is in this for them. Eichel, speaking of which, he has had one uh, vocal defender, although he took it in a different direction. His old teammate, Robin Leonard. Yes, yeah, Robin Leonard sure opened up a can of worms this week, didn't he not? Boy, howdy. So let's talk about that. I found I found a lot of things he had to say quite interesting. Well, it came out immediately after he's like, for you uh, folks at home who didn't see it, he basically said NHL teams routinely give um, prescription drugs to players that the, aren't prescribed to those players and don't always even tell them what they're giving them. Just say, take these and you'll be fine. And that uh, sometimes leads to players getting addicted to bennies and that kind of thing. And almost immediately after he said that, a story broke that that's exactly what the Philadelphia Flyers did to, um, what's his name? The guy they... Nolan Patrick? To Nolan Patrick, thank you. The, the guy they just traded away, who whose career is, I would say, still in a little bit of doubt due to uh, injury and performance issues, which now may be tied to a benzo addiction. So... Yeah, I don't know. He's He certainly appears to be at least somewhat justified. I don't think anyone has a hard time believing that um, professional sports teams treat their at- athletes badly, like uh, pieces of meat that just need to be taped together and sent back out to play. Um, I, like, I'll, I got a, a side thought that might distract us from this, so I'll, I'll let one of you guys take it for a second. 
Yeah, you know, yeah, you know it is I think there was a documentary, documentary on CSN, um, the culture of pain, it came out last year with uh, requested to show it how a lot of guys, lot of guys who were retired were, were on all these kinds of different pills, this pill, that pill, that pill on Cordol, which is known to basically demolish your liver. You guys were getting fed, and it's not because we live in a sports world where all these pills are fed to these guys. But yet, but for, yet so long, for so long, cannabis, cannabis was demonized. Was demonized. Don't, take don't take that. Oh, that's bad. That's, that's, bad. that's evil. When so many when players, players are said on, on, on the record that it, it helped you get through get injury, injury help you recover better than any pill ever done. So, ever done. so hopefully, hopully Robin Leonard is talking about this stuff. Hopefully he changes the culture. I don't think I've ever heard a player, a star player in this career, career. be this vocal about the amount of pills the guys have been fed like extent. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I've certainly never seen an active, not just an active player, like an active borderline star uh, come out and, and fire from the hip like this. It's really something to see. Um, I know that some people, and to, in some ways this makes sense, say, well, you know, that's Leonard. He's kind of a, he, he's a character. He's, uh, you know, he he's bouncing around like he actually is bipolar. That That's, um, well, that's one of his classic mood swings. And I don't think that's, uh, even if that is 100% true, it still doesn't serve to dismiss that what he says appears to be entirely accurate. I think it was really uh, brave of him, and he's, he's going against the flow of uh, the sports culture, and he's sticking up for his fellow teammates, so um, uh, good for him. Well, I, I looked up, um, I was just curious about some other reaction to what he had said, and Dan Carcillo weighed in on that as well, and... As we know, in his retirement, uh, Carcillo has become quite outspoken about um, concussions and protocols within the league, and uh, he talked here a little bit um, in his reaction to uh, what uh, Robin Leonard had said about Steve Montador, uh, who was cleared for 19 concussions while he was playing uh, over, like, 571 games. And so... Um, you know, he, anyway, you know, talking, talking a little bit about um, how seeking treatment away from the organization um, was something that got him essentially in trouble, right? And so looking at, at this, and so having, you know, Robin Leonard come and, and come out and say that this is a thing that happens, um, and it's quite widespread, it's not surprising, I don't think. I don't think anyone should be shocked by that. Um, but I also think that, like... You know, the uh, that there's some questions that need to be answered from different organizations uh, as to how they've dealt with some certain things. Because you gotta wonder, right? You gotta wonder about guys being rushed back, and like we know with the Oilers and Sheldon Surrey's wrist, and you know stuff like we know that there that this isn't just like an isolated sort of thing. And so, I'm curious to know what, if anything, other than like a talking to from the league comes of what Leonard had to say. It was pretty hilarious that Gary Bettman said, oh, he didn't need to tweet about this. He could have called us. We have an 800 number. Yeah, if there's one thing the NHL is famous for doing, Gary, it's responding well to player complaints. Right? <laughs> Gary Bettman is so full of shit, and it drives me crazy that anyone defends him. But um, whatever. Um, I will say the thing that I think is maybe the most interesting about the Robin uh, Leonard saga, and sorry if this like takes us away from sports itself, this is more of a philosophical point, 
is I saw a number of people post like, isn't it something that this guy's an inspiring advocate? What a beautiful uh, redemption arc when just a couple years ago, he was a huge Trump fan and he was a huge Trump supporter and we all hated him. What an inspiring redemption arc. That arc is an illusion. The irredeem like I heard people call him irredeemable trash. This irredeemable trash human, uh, because he likes uh, Trump. Which I'm not saying that Trump does isn't bad. I agree, Trump's bad. But the irredeemable guy and the inspiring advocate are the same person. The arc is an illusion. He was always this guy. He was that. He probably, in many ways, still is that other guy that you didn't like. That's how everything works. People don't change. They just get different sides of them. Uh, zeroed in on and expanded upon. He's in a different um, scenario that brings out different elements of his personality, but he's the same person that he was before. And that's how I think yeah, everything I is. Think, no, I think that's an interesting thing too because we have this, this notion when it comes to sports. Um, we have this notion that our, our, our favorite players or whatever the role models that they're like, you know, that they're good people, all of them. Right, mm -hmm. that they're all like the Paul Koreas of the world, right? Uh, and I only say that because I assume Paul Korea is a stand-up human being. I have no evidence to the contrary, right? Like that's just there's never been like a sniff of evidence to the contrary yep. in that respect. Um, but like we have this illusion that these athletes who we put on pedestals because of the thing that they're really good at, um, that we and we give them platforms and then we somehow care what they have to say about things, uh, that they are all people that we agree with on everything, right? So when someone like Robin Leonard comes out and talks about this, um, then we want him to have like sort of, yeah, given up that like Trump supporting way of being because that in our minds that doesn't work. And someone who's like speaking out about this prescription drug thing, also how could they support Donald Trump? Well, who cares? Mm -hmm. uh, they are the same person. And he probably, you're right, probably still is the same person. And that's okay. Uh, because he did a thing that no one else who's uh, in the league right now is doing. And yeah. he said something that no one else had the courage to come out and say. And he did, uh, for you folks at home, he went back on his Trump support, said he was disappointed and disillusioned uh, with the movement. And he, I don't know if he used, Elfish said he regretted taking part in it, but he no longer supports it. And one of the main reasons was he became a mental health advocate and thought that uh, the far-right ideology was not empathetic enough for his taste, um, which I think is a pretty fair criticism. But... Um, I think that that's just how life works in general. Like we, Twitter especially, seems to really like to say this guy is good, that guy is bad. This woman's good, this woman's bad. When most people are a pretty healthy mix of both, and if it seems like they're only one, that's because the spotlight's only getting put on the one part of them. Um, and I just think Leonard's the best, certainly the best example in hockey I can think of along those lines. All right, that, that, that ends my uh, little diversion on, um, you know, the nature of morality in humans. Well, what I think is also interesting, I was just poking around on Twitter looking just, I just searched up Ron Leonard's name, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting, um, obviously, like, Rick West had, had some stuff he had to say about it. Um, Alan Walsh had some stuff to say. Uh, as we know, Alan Walsh is a very uh, prominent player agent. He does love um, fans, And though. I think... Uh, so, and yeah, and I, that was kind of my thought is like, these guys, they know things, right? Like they obviously, they're not, 
they're, they're this is not they're not just like retweeting stuff from Robin Leonard because they can. But I also noticed some former players uh, like Dale Weiss from Montreal. I don't know where else he played, but I think of him as a Montreal Canadian. He was like, it's good to know that there's a current NHLer like talking about some of the stuff. Tom uh, Tom Sestito again. I don't agree with lots of the things that. Uh, Sestito says and does about anything else, but he is obviously saying, he says here, like, good for Rob Leonard standing up for the greater good. I can only speak for myself. The amount of Tordal and Ambien I was given is insane. Um, doesn't really expand on it, but, like, clearly there's some truth to the things that Leonard's, that Leonard is saying. And uh, I think that that's going to be an interesting way going forward. A lot of us have seen any given Sunday. We know how they like to... Whatever it takes, just get out there and play. Mm-hmm. We're not paying you to sit on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. Me blame me, but if it trades so much of what's real about football culture, sports culture, by you know playing through the pain, no matter what, you got 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 Three, five, five, ten years, ten because years now we're now talking, we're talking about, about the open now. It's the longest big open secret. secret. That's only for trade in movies. Yeah, and it also it's interesting to me how bad being an elite athlete is for the human body. Like you, <laughs> you just force yourself into collisions. Even just the strength of your when your muscles become that strong, it seems to be really bad on your joints and ligaments. If you're looking to uh, achieve peak human health. You want to be a pretty good athlete and just stay pretty good for a really long time. Becoming an elite athlete just tears your body apart, so don't do that if your goal is health. Uh, you mentioned me, the way the body is torn apart. My dad ran to the field in Kentucky for two years, and my dad blew his knee twice. And this is like the 80s, back when he said he was pretty primitive. So my dad's giant scar up and down his knees from blowing out his knees with a triple jump for a NCAA. So great example right there. Boom. That's hardcore. As you said that, I don't know if you guys have seen the 30 for 30 about Marcus Dupree. Uh, called the best that never was, which I think might be the best of all the 30 for 30s um, that they made. And it's it's exactly about that. Uh, he was a running back uh, in high school and in college, really, really good, uh, projected to go really high in the draft. He was going to have this like great career. And then he blew his ACL, I believe, in his junior year of college. And that was it. Like there was, there was nothing else. It was like everything for the pursuit of this dream. And again, it was like yeah, early '80s. I think it, I think his draft year was like '83, maybe, and that was the end of that. And now the last at the end of the documentary, anyway, he was like working back in his hometown as, as like a in some kind of like a labor job, and you know making ends meet and everything's fine. But clearly, never had the the pro sports career that could have been had he not been hurt. Yeah. And like looking at these guys that do make it, like you say, it's impossibly hard on their bodies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and looking at these guys that do make it, like, I do wonder when they're done, how many people are just in really bad shape. I wonder that also, like how many, there's, there just doesn't seem to be that many spry ex elite athletes. I mean, I mean, I yeah. Mean, I mean, there are, I mean, there are, I mean, there are a few. Like, uh, for example, is is um, is, um Grimson. Grimson. You know, you know, one of the touch fighters in the nineties, two is now a very accomplished lawyer in the states. 
This is a totally like unrelated note, but I'm pretty convinced that the reason why Stu Grimson remains so famous is because the Grim Reaper was one of the best nicknames of all time. If you look up Stu. If you just look up Stu Grimson fights on YouTube, it's almost all like, man, Stu Grimson really got his ass handed to him there. He very famously <laughs> lost the fight to George LaRock, lost a couple of big fights to Dave Brown. To be fair, he did win one on Dave Brown, but which Brown clearly resented because he really took it to him the next time. There's, I don't know, I don't think Stu Grimson does that well via YouTube. I'm sure he's got a few wins out there. But, um, <laughs> but the Grim Reaper, what an amazing nickname. That's oh, super hardcore. I was just thinking, though, of, like, me, like you say, like, spry, ex-elite athletes. I think the one that comes to mind for me the most is probably Gary Roberts. Oh, yeah. Um, Good, great call. Just in, but he's, like, made a second career out of that, right? So, yeah, like, he, But he's one of, he's an exception, I think, to the rule, because I don't think you see, you know, a lot of guys. I was reading something about, like, NFL players, too, once they retire. Because um, an average NFL career is pretty short, all things considered. Uh, and you have all of this medical care at your disposal when you're playing and all, like, all of this, everything that you could possibly need and nutritionists and, like, and whatever. And then all of a sudden you're kind of like left to your own devices. And it's tough to like figure out how to live normally when all of that structure is taken away. And so like someone like Gary Roberts is, I think, very much the exception to that rule where he's managed to maintain and, and keep his body functioning at a pretty high level to be able to do what he, what he does today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like he's, well, he's 56 now, and he is still, he is like, still jacked, jacked with six-pack six muscles. Muscle. He is like, still, still in very, very great shape. shape. Mm-hmm. And, to, I mean, yeah, it makes sense as they're all extremely gifted athletes in the first place, so you'd expect a couple of them would just would age well. But, but uh, yeah, it's, it's hard on your body being that big, strong, and fast. And then I think also, like, if we're think, talking about, like, what Leonard had to say about, you know, medication and, and the way that that is, all of a sudden, now you're out of that system that provides you with those things. And, you know, so there's, like, dealing with other issues that come with that and that chronic pain and all that kind of stuff. And you don't necessarily have, you know, the resources to get help with that or know where to go to get help with that because you're sort of left out of... Um, left out in the cold, which I think leads into, in terms of, like, support and stuff, I think leads into, a, we could have a, a quick conversation, maybe, about the announcement that Carey Price uh, made yesterday, that he needs to take some time away from the game, and I can't remember where I saw it tweeted, but it's, like, the NHL used to be, like, their substance abuse uh, program, and it has now been, like, renamed. I was about so to bring that up. It's now more designed. It's not just about substance abuse, but it's it's essentially like um, a resource and support for players who are struggling now with mental health issues and things like that. Whereas before, I think it was very much um, like I think about like when Theron Fleury entered the program and other players like that. Like there's a taboo sort of about that, and so like at least the the, the name change sort of gets away from some of that stigma. Hopefully. Yeah, the old name was very stigmatized. I can't remember what it was, but it was something along the lines of substance abuse and uh, bad behavior fixing. And you're like, oh well, I don't want to admit that I have either of those issues, but now it's it's more just like support or something like that. 
Exactly. Exactly. It's more, yeah, more, more support, support more, more um, seeing mental, seeing mental health issues if they are, they are not seen as always with your health. In general, in general, it's gone. Yeah, exactly. It's the, the stigma of it being only for dorks or whatever. That's gone, which is a great thing. There are players who are who have neither problems in their life. Dork. Yeah, and I'm just, I like, just pulled up a CBC thing, and the the NHL has sort of been encouraging, you know, um, now it's the player assistance program. Much better. This is what it's called. So it, yeah, which is a much better term because it's a little bit more all encompassing. Uh, and this is this is the the shift started about a decade ago after uh, Rick Rippon died, but I don't think that the the name. Um, the name before where it was like really very much focused on substance abuse was necessarily like welcoming in the way that you would want it to be. Yeah. I think that, uh, those kind of small touches go a lot further than maybe it seems like they're obviously going to, but if you can, mm -hmm. that old saying, like, don't punish the behavior you want to see. Um, I think that works applies definitely to getting help. Like if you can, it's much easier to get somebody to apply for player assistance than to check themselves into substance abuse program. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then this way, it also sort of, it feels to me like, and I don't know what the structure of the program was before, um, but it feels to me like this is also a, deals a little bit more with like supports for families as well and not just the player, um, which I think is an important thing. I concur. I concur. Um, so, now that we've got all of our preseason things and whatnot out of the way, let's talk about the Oilers for a minute. Let's talk about the Oilers this, uh, for a minute. On this Oilers rig podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Okay, so uh, tonight is the last, today is Saturday, October the 9th. Uh, it's the last preseason game um, of, of the year. Uh, the last of the meaningless hockey games. And so we thought, you know, obviously today was a good day to talk about uh, everything but the Oilers. But, yeah, let's talk about the Oilers. And uh, how do we feel about this upcoming season? I'll start with the positive. It really just amuses the hell out of me that as negative as uh, Oilers Twitter has been about the team, most of the models are quite friendly to them, including Dom LeCision, one of the most high-profile uh, model makers, it was like, ah, they're going to do very well. They're a 100-point team, definitely. Well, not nothing's definite in the NHL, but, like, the, he thinks that they'll... I think he has them at 106. I might be wrong about that. But, like, not just comfortably in the playoffs, like, near the top of the league. And uh, that is... It's very funny to me that as much as we like to uh, criticize Holland, the team is probably going to be pretty good this year. I have a b pretty big butt on that one, but uh, I'll... I will hold it for a moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, all jokes aside, aside, I think the Oilers team will, will, will it really the division is going to be between them and Vegas, Vegas Knights, one, two. one, two. Yeah, you can, yeah, you can switch between those two teams. Either one of them will be the um, um the, the division winner. winner. Yeah, I think Edmonton yeah, will, will be. I'll, I'll say it'll be at ninety-nine points, ninety-nine points in the division. And what the forward core is still very good. Improve the forward core dramatically. The defense, the defense still, still mm, the goaltending the goal is, is, they didn't improve the goaltending, goal I thought it was a mistake. But that fourth core is still going to propel this team, team into a playoff spot, spot comfortably, comfortably um, come, um, next come, next come next spring. Come next spring, sorry. 
Um, oh. I think that that's a, a fair point, and I was just going to say that the Oilers will win all of their games 8-7. Uh, <laughs> because they have an incredibly talented forward core, not great defense, and goaltending is more more likely than not starting off going to be a question mark. Uh, so they're going to win every single game this year 8-7. I looked it up. Uh, Dom has them at 100.9 points, which is obviously uh, coasting into the playoffs. Um, however... As much as I just say, ah, the models are much kinder to them than the negative people would have you believe. If you're one of the positivists out there who are like, yeah, yeah, Holland is good because of the models. These same models, uh, many of them are arguing that they have it, one of the three worst defensive cores in the league. That it is not just not that good, that it is bad. He took, Holland took what was like maybe one shrewd move away from being a strength and uh, turned it into... By far the team's most glaring weakness. I hear a lot of people talk about the goaltending. I'm actually not that afraid of the goaltending. I think we've got four guys who all might suck, but any one of them could be okay. And all we really need is one guy who's okay, and we'll be all right. Um, so that's not a terrible bet. The The defense is an abomination. It's really, really bad. And <laughs> I'll cut Holland a little bit of slack. I don't think it's obviously not his fault that Clefbaum got hurt. That was the huge first blow. I really genuinely don't think it's fault. It's his fault that Larson left. I don't think he played that wrong. I think that um, that's just the way she goes sometimes. However, the way he reacted to both of those things was really bad. The defense is really bad. The, the Cody Cece contract is really bad. Like, I know we just spent a lot of time talking about how preseason doesn't matter, so I'm zipping my lip a little bit, but I'll just quickly throw out there that um, I haven't... There doesn't seem to be any reason to think that, that it's not clear that Cody Cece is the second best right-hander on this team. I've heard people debate if he's the third or fourth best right-hander on this team. He uh, just hasn't distinguished himself, which I don't think is a huge deal because it's the preseason. But I'm very excited for the league to actually start just so we can see what this defense looks like. Because it's going to shut someone up one way or the other. Either it's going to shut up the people who've spent the same the last four months just making the same tweet over and over and over again. Oh, you don't approve of the Duncan Keith trade? I hadn't realized. Tweet it again tomorrow, and maybe I'll finally pick that up. Or the people were like, hey, we need to give them a game. Let's see how. Let's see what happens. Let's do see what happens, because one of you is uh, going to be eating a little bit of crow. I know where my money goes. Um, just because I think you're needlessly repetitive doesn't mean I think you're wrong. But stranger things have happened. We'll see, we'll see who surprises and who doesn't. But, uh, yeah, the, the defense is not looking good. Well, I do think this team is a lock to make the playoffs, there's no way in this division that forward core is missing the playoffs. I would be amazed if they make it out of the second round, and I won't be shocked if they don't make it out of the first. That D is just looks so weak at this time. Who knows? It's hockey. Maybe Keith rejuvenates and uh, CC hits his prime. We'll see. And Bouchard arrives and a bunch of other stuff. It, may, it could all come together. But it seems like it's equally likely to all fall apart. Well, and this is why I think that, you know, when the games that they win, they're all going to win 8-7 or 6-5 or whatever because they have the forward core that's going to be able to score lots and lots of goals, and they don't have a defensive group that is necessarily going to be able to stop other teams from getting a puck in um, to get those high-danger chances off. Like, it's just, it's just, it's going to be, there's going to be lots of, like, good old high-scoring shootouts. It's going to be super fun to watch. 
uh, until it's not fun anymore. And that's and that's where the question for me anyway, where the question mark potentially in goal becomes an issue because if the defense is as bad as models suggest that it's going to be, and the forwards are as good as the models suggest they're going to be, the thing that's going to uh, make or break the season then is going to be the goaltending and whether it airs on the good side of average or the bad side of average. And that's the problem. I, uh, I don't know. I'll be, I'll be surprised if the team is good enough to have, like, I mean, if, if we say the goal is to win a Stanley cup, I think even if you were to upgrade the goaltending that that defense isn't winning a cup. And I don't think it's going to be very easy to fix because you're spending so much money on Keith and CC that the only thing that you have room for at the deadline is a third-pairing acquisition. And really, our third-pairing is not especially good, but it's not like... You you don't lose a cup, typically, because your third pair wasn't good enough. You need to improve the top four, and it doesn't look like we're going to have... Who, who The only way that Holland could improve the top four is if he admits he made a mistake, because if the top four needs improvement, it'll be because some combination of Nurse, Barry, Keith, and Cece weren't good enough. So that those are all Holland guys. Like, Holland has staked his claim that my defense is going to be good because of those guys. Mm-hmm. Probably Evan Bouchard is going to be good enough that, okay, then there's no room on the, on the right side. We maybe could use a third-pairing left defenseman. Uh, that's not going to do anything. Like, maybe that'll bump... Keith down to the third pair, but if Keith's on the third pair, then that's already Holland's admitting he's wrong, which I think he will probably avoid doing. So I don't even see trade deadline help coming. The one thing he could do with the trade, maybe we could use a slight upgrade at the third line forward. And obviously there's the goaltending position. I think there's a pretty good chance we see some, if he makes a big swing, that'll probably be it. But even if he, let's say, trades uh, Broberg, Koskinen, and a first for Gibson. I don't think that this is a Stanley Cup team with that defense, unless whoever they get for goalie is elite. I just don't see that happening. And the thing again, we mentioned defense, 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 go back to money. It was Doug Keith coming in, seventh round pick, and Chicago team half. Like, the uproar isn't as much. But again, Holland took all the salary back, which still, to this day, is a baffling move. It's a dumb decision as to why you helped Chicago out that much. Like, I don't I still understand why you helped the Hawks out that much with that kind of a deal. Like, you have a cup, too. Like, yeah, but it doesn't make any sense as to why you take. Back the money and do them a favor, like mystifying. <laughs> and confounding. Holland deserved all the flack. He deserved every bit of flack in the press conference for why he retained Sally and Donald Keith. It was it was a dumb decision. That's why I'm excited for the season to start. That's the number one reason why I'm excited. Is we'll see. Keith is going to show up and something's going to happen. And I, to be honest, I don't even care. If Keith rules and I'm the one who's wrong, that's great. We can just stop talking. About, I'm tired of the... Not Actually, I take that back. We won't stop talking about it. But we can at least talk about what's actually happening. I'm tired of the prognostication. As everyone's been making the same prediction for the past four months, your Twitter feeds are all repetitive. You guys need to mix <laughs> it up a little bit. Both the positive people and the negative people. You all need to just mix in some different looks. Stop predicting the same thing over and over again. 
Yeah, yeah but, but if you keep saying the same thing over and over again, and then you happen to be right, then, you know, you can look back at all of the times that you said the one thing that you could, the only thing that you know, and you can be like, look at how right I was about this one specific thing. You can do that even if you only say it once a week. You can still but say, I've been telling you guys, and everyone will say, well, that's true, she has been telling us, she has been telling us. You say it every day, I don't know, just it, uh, you tune you out. So when the Oilers are, I don't know, 7 and 12, if I just tweet out time is a flat circle, are you going to get mad about that? Because that is the thing that I say reasonably often. But not every day. Not every day. Not every day, that's true. It's only when something happens that has happened before uh, that I... It's re- my, my tweets about the Oilers are generally reactive and not. I might passive aggressively stop liking those tweets, and you'll just have to wonder. Well, he's probably busy. He's probably not even on Twitter right now. Is what you'll tell yourself. But no, it's because you need a new McConaughey quote. But it's true. Time is a flat circle. If there was one person um, though that I'd want to put in charge of finding a new McConaughey quote, it would be you. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Don't know what that says about me, but uh, just going to go with it. Avery, what are your thoughts about uh, this regular season upcoming? Well, if this team does start separate 12, World of Tour will be on fire. Like a five-alarm fire. Guaranteed that it'll happen. Like, it'll, be, it'll be war. I'll be in my bunker hiding out with a shield over my head, you know, watching the chaos happen. I mean, that's where I'll be, too. But, uh, yeah, um, if we assume that the Oilers are going to be good enough but, um, to make the playoffs, and they should. They, therefore, they should make the playoffs in this division specifically, in this particular format. Um, if they don't make it out of the divisional part of the playoffs whether they win the first round out in the second whatever don't make it through the first round is that a failure on ken holland's part is that a failure on coaching where does this sit yes (laughs) (laughs) ah yes well that's kind of what i was hoping for but uh, no really like if where does it where does the blame sit if they don't if they don't get out of the first or second round of the playoffs. I will say personally, I have a, I feel like I have a better grasp of uh, the management side than the coaching side. And while Tippett does some things that I don't love, he seems good in other ways. Um, and all, I have a sneaking suspicion that the reason why he keeps insisting on playing Drysaddle and McDavid together is they keep telling him to do it. And it would be nice if uh, the coach was the coach. But when you're an Edmonton team, you maybe have to... Um, get led around by the greatest player in 30 years a little bit more than you might like to be. But uh, the the Holland mistakes just seem so much uh, more obvious to me. Um, and maybe, we'll see. I think that if the team flounders, I expect Dave Tippett will go. I don't think Tippett's coming back either way. Um, like the consistent playoff failures are definitely starting to add up. It appears that he's one of those guys who might be able to put together a decent regular season but doesn't know how to adjust and improvise in the playoffs which is a big part of playoff coaching um but the things that holland's doing i can i can just better detail where he's going wrong so i blame holland before i blame tippet as uh i think he he yeah his mistakes are just more obvious you don't need to know hockey as well to know where he's going wrong why he it seems to be a misallocation of resources the way he put the d together 
I'm just mystified that you would want Tyson Berry and Evan Bouchard on the same decor. And I'm not even trying to knock Berry, all you Berry boosters out there. Barry does some things well. I think he's underrated by the model and a certain portion of Edmonton fans. But him and Evan Bouchard are both power play savants with, we'll fairly describe them both as questionable, even strength defense who don't penalty kill. That, you can't have two guys. Like, there's only one power play one, and you need at least two uh, right shot penalty killers, don't you? So it's, it's weird. I guess we're going to try and turn... Evan Bouchard into an all-around guy because I can't imagine you're paying Tyson Berry to not put him on your power play. So, uh, I, I don't know. It's just a, an awkward roster construction. It's unbalanced. I think balance is overblown, but man, is this some wonky-ass balancing. Yeah? Avery? Uh, you know uh, what, though? No, I'll, no, say, I'll, I'll say, say as, I'll much. Say as much. If, if Tyson Berry this year is nominated for the Norris Trophy, can you imagine the takes on Willis Twitter that have those happens in this year? I know last time he lived the league in points, wasn't anywhere near Norris voting. Anywhere near, he was the first defenseman in league history to lead the league in defensive points and not get a single Norris vote. That's never been done before. That just boggles my mind that that's impossible. That was possible. No, no, it's not mind-boggling at all. It's because he's not a good defenseman. There's no secret here. There's nothing mystifying about it. And this is the thing about all of the Tyson Berry defenders in out here in uh, on Oilers Twitter, especially. Like, anyone who's like, oh, yeah, but he scored more points than any other defenseman in the league. I'm like, yeah, so did Bobby Orr. And I would contend that Bobby Orr was also not a great defenseman because he didn't need to be because he was so good at the offensive side of his game. Yeah. Like... Well, I'm not going to follow you into your controversial. That's a very controversial thing to say, but all, but the thing with Tyson Berry is like, yeah, sure, he scored a whole pile of points. It's hard not to score points uh, if you happen to play on a power play well, unit with uh, Connor McDavid. That's true. There's that as well. But he didn't but, win but also, that power play spot in a raffle. Like, there's a reason why they put him <laughs> on the power play. No, agreed, agreed. And that's totally fair, too. But, like, if you happen to get an opportunity to play with Connor McDavid and or Leon Dreisettle, it seems that your numbers go up regardless of... Maybe they might not go up uh, commensurate to your actual ability because you are definitely being boosted by the people that you're playing with. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't have an issue with that and people being like, yeah, like Barry filled the role he was supposed to fill and did those things and that's great. But the problem I have with people saying he was such a good defenseman is like, no. It's like people saying, oh, Chris Russell leads the league and blocks shots. I'm like, yeah, because he's bad at what he's supposed to be doing. And that's why he blocks so many shots. It's kind of the same thing, just on opposite ends of that defenseman... Tyson Berry really does not defend very well. I will like I'll offer a qualified defense of Berry that I like specialists like him more than more some people do because on certain teams they really need that guy. Like if you have an otherwise strong team that has a dire need at one specific spot, uh, that player can come in and be extremely useful. Like uh, Mike Hoffman's an example, Patrick Laine is another example, or defensively <laughs> Matt Green won a couple of cups with the, the Kings. If you're a person who really specializes and your team has a slot for someone who specializes, you can be very, very valuable despite your deficiencies. The Oilers are not the team for Tyson Berry for two reasons. Number one, we have Evan Bouchard, who already does everything Berry does. I know that he hasn't done it at an NHL level. I feel very confident saying he's as good at running a power play as Tyson Berry is, or at least very comparable. And the other thing is, we have Dreisaitl and McDavid, 
they don't need an expert power play quarterback. I agree that Tyson Berry has some skills and like um, some mental skills, especially that Darnell Nurse uh, and some of the other Oilers defensemen, like I know Ethan Bear got a little bit of power play time. I think all things being equal, Barry's better than both those guys in the power play. He, the power play doesn't produce at a higher rate with Barry than it does with Darnell Nurse. And the reason is neither of those guys, like we call the defenseman on the power play the quarterback, but they're not the quarterback. They're the tight end of the thing. McDavid's the quarterback of the power play. McDavid and Dreisaitl are doing 80% of the work between them. Who you put on that guy, I won't say it doesn't matter. You're better off with Tyson Berry than you are with me or um, uh, Corey Potter, for example. But (laughs) I don't think that Tyson Berry is being maximized by being put on uh, the Oilers. If we didn't have Evan Bouchard, it would be different. I don't mind Tyson Berry as a third-pairing power play specialist. That is not what the Oilers need. We have greater needs elsewhere. There's an opportunity cost to signing Tyson Berry, even at an admittedly good deal. I think that if you're going to sign Tyson Berry, that's about the best price you could have hoped. That's a better price, I think, than you could have realistically hoped to get him for. But then you should have had the guts to keep Ethan Bear and trade Evan Bouchard, in my opinion. But. And speaking of Tyson Berry, when I said about I, I, I think it was more so. I was surprised so, that, that there was so, there was so much unity among, among the voters, among the voters to, agree to agree that he wasn't worthy. Because yeah. usually yeah. some voter would say, yeah, here's the, here's the, here's the vote here. Here's the vote. Here's the token vote. Here's a couple of token votes. What baffled me was that there was a unified front on him getting no votes at all. That's what baffled me on Tyson Berry. The point leader getting zero votes from Norris. I agree. That it genuinely surprised me. I thought somebody would just default to it. I um, I thought it was surprising too, but I also was sort of like, well, I suppose that makes sense given, uh, like you say, he's a specialist in a particular kind of way, and that as a as an overall sort of all around defenseman, he's not that great. And I think maybe that's probably where that sort of came from. Um, so we can all agree that the Oilers are going to make the playoffs. We just uh, don't know if they'll go anywhere outside of the playoffs. Um, I think you're probably right that if they don't do anything in the playoffs, that Tippett will be gone. Um, I don't. I can't see him being brought back after another playoff disappointment. I'll even add, say what you want about uh, like uh, the Tippett, or even about Holland's season the year before this this summer. This summer. He made some moves that didn't maximize our playoff chances last year, but they really set him up this summer. So he was going to have lots of assets and lots of cap space. So this is it. Like We can't put anything on Chirelli or bad luck anymore. He had the opportunity to build this team the way he wanted to, and he's done it. His reputation is very much on the line. Just because he's the GM and has such an incredible reputation, I think he'll get another season past this one. But if we... Flame out early, I think he'll get to hire a new coach, but he'll officially be hot seated. Yeah, no, yeah, no, seat, yeah, no, yeah, tip no, it no, seat. So, tip it seat, that'd be like a volcano right now. This, this team does not get past the first round. I'm pretty sure they catapult in the back room somewhere, but it'll throw him out of if his team falls in round one. Indeed. Which I think is totally possible. They've just got such exploitable weaknesses. As and exploitable right in a way that, like, it was preventable, right? Like, they don't, they didn't have to have these weaknesses. I don't think so. Uh, and yeah, like you, like you've said, he made the team sort of in his image, and this is this is what he wanted. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so, who, like, I mean, if this is what he wanted, who are we to be like, well, this isn't what I would have done. Sure, it's not what I would have done, but as we know, they haven't hired me yet, so here I am. Absolutely. Um, okay, any other hockey thoughts before I ask my Dancing with the Stars question? No. Let's hear this. I just have, it's just one question, and it's just based on what we were talking about before. Uh, of all of the current NHL players... Who is the one you would most like to see as a contestant on Dancing with the Stars? Connor McDavid. That that would not be entertaining at all. I think it would be neat to watch him do it flawlessly. The footwork that he displays, I think I think he'd crush it. I think he would uh, be the best. I think the pros would say, actually, you're better than us. Uh, I think he would be very good technically, but I feel like his lack of personality would uh, have him knocked out in like the first two shows. I will do one better. I will see Jeff. I want my, my boy Jeff Skinner on that. I think Jeff Skinner would do very well. Oh yeah, that's not a bad call. Yeah. He, well, didn't he? He he figure skated there for a while, did, did yes. he not? For ten years. He was yeah. So, yeah. So he's got the footwork. On like he he's he's got the footwork he could definitely do some of that and probably had to do dance training in order to be a good figure skater. No, I was just sort of thinking about it and I knew someone was gonna say Connor McDavid and I disagree wholeheartedly because he has the personality of uh, paper mache. Do you want to hear my were... gossipy story about Connor McDavid that I recently heard? I would yes, I, I I think that would be great. You can you can cut this out if you feel the language is inappropriate for the rig listeners, but I'm gonna tell it to you as it was told to me. So one of my All friends right, is friends it. with a guy who used to be on the Oilers. Doesn't matter who. So he got to go out with them. This was a couple years ago even when like McDavid was a little bit younger. And they went out for a night on the town. And everybody was apparently really going for it. Except for Connor McDavid who mostly just sat at the table nursing a drink all night and watching sports highlights. And at one point this guy I know decided that he needed to this is the guy he's gonna you're gonna tell your kids you met him i gotta go have a conversation with this dude but he'd also been getting pretty torn up the whole night so he sort of stumbles over to mcdavid as he's nursing his one drink and watching sports highlights he's like so they um they must just throw pussy at you around here huh and mcdavid looked at him and then silently just turned his chair to watch another tv to look at sports highlights without even acknowledging what the guy said and kept nursing his one drink at the party. So <laughs> that's the Connor McDavid is a hockey playing robot story for, for the day. So that is the Connor McDavid uh, that you would like to see on Dancing with the Stars. I think he would I dance think. really well. You know what? I like robots. I like robots. I like Vulcans. Spock is my favorite sci-fi character. <laughs> Oh man! I, like I think I think prowl. the I think the 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 hockey player I would most like to see on Dancing with the Stars. It's not an answer that either one of you would expect from me, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. I think Alex Ovechkin would be a plus fun. Oh yeah, that's a good call. Uh, to be yeah, to so. be on that show, I think he would be a, just a lot of fun. I don't think he would win. I don't know if he could dance. It doesn't matter. It would be very entertaining. Great call. Okay, that's a good one. That's a good call. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about it, and I was like, no, I don't think Cindy Crosby and or Taylor Hall would be very good at that, and I don't think I'd want to watch that. But Alex Ovechkin, let's see it. Um, that's, I think that's all we have uh, for this time around. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Um, 
this is the last time that I'm going to be hosting, quote unquote. We have uh, we have a, a, a change, a format change coming up. So uh, we'll see how we feel about that. I'm shocked. My monocle just fell in my wine, my brandy. <laughs> I mean. Uh, I'm not leaving for you know greener pastures like Alex. Uh, just uh, we're just gonna switch some things up here uh, on this old podcast and see how things work. Um, Avery, do you got anything you need to plug? Uh, as per usual, I will just plug my Twitter at Avery at Avery. You can find my work on Sports Canada, Sports Show, Podcast. All kinds of fun stuff. We are actually keeping Zone 2, uh, Zone Time episode 2 this week here. You can see me on again on Yahoo Sports Canada, most likely on Tuesday or Wednesday, talking about the HL Open Week. Excellent. Steven, you got anything going on? I do. Uh, if this show gets out in time, I am hosting the comic strip on Tuesday, October the 12th. Um, it, that starts at 7.30. It's just a, a pro-am night, so it's, it's really cheap. If you want to go, message me. I'll put you on the guest list. I don't care. And um, I am hosting what's an even bigger deal, the Live Laugh Debate at the comic strip at 7.30. It's uh, going to be these two comedians debating. The question is, does Canada need a new political party? And the one is saying, yes, a new right wing. And the other is saying, yes, a new left wing. And one of the two guys is the dude who drunkenly stumbled up to Connor McDavid and made a vulgar suggestion and then was shut down by him. So if you would like to see that dude, who I would describe as a living cartoon character, um, yeah, I don't know. That, that's happening this Wednesday. So that's Wednesday. So two, you're there Tuesday and Wednesday. Tuesday and Wednesday. And that sounded like that sounded like a bit of a shot at me to like, hey, make sure this gets out so people can hear this. Which oh, I will. You put it's it a long out. Weekend. You know, if it comes out next week, I just want the people to know that I'm doing okay. You know, <laughs> Avery and Alex and Megan—they're not the only ones who do stuff. I do stuff. All right, I get out there. I mix it up. I have debatable success. But uh, let's see you do okay, but not that great. In front of uh, an undetermined number of people. If you think it's so easy. No, that's not what anyone I didn't mean you specifically. I I meant our listeners, who I feel are (laughs) second-guessing me right now at home. You two are okay, but you listeners, I would like to challenge you all to fights or rap battles or whatever you think you're good at. I'm better at everything than you. Um, yeah, I got nothing. I, I have nothing to plug. Um, unless there's anyone out here who lives in the Edmonton area who might want to donate uh, some DSLR cameras uh, to my school because we have a photography club that has two cameras. So if that's a thing you might be interested in, uh, DM me on Twitter at MIG14 and we'll chat. Um, that's all we have for this time around. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Yes, thank you. <laughs>